and welcome to the D&D Roundtable on the Tome Show Podcast Network. I'm your host, James Indricasso. If this is your first time listening, welcome to the show. If you've been here before, do me a favor, go give us a great rating on iTunes. It only takes 30 seconds and it helps us a bunch. I read one new five-star review verbatim every episode. Make me say anything you want, but keep it clean, people. This is a family D&D podcast. Today's review comes from the one and only... Like a Sahedron 20, who is one of the greatest people. Uh, you should follow him on Twitter. He has the same name. Uh, he's been on this very Tome Show podcast. I think we need to get him on a roundtable. Uh, his review is entitled A Baller Review, which is exactly what everyone should leave on iTunes. Like a Sahedron 20 says, I used to do nothing but sit and watch cable, but the shows just kept getting lamer and lamer. Now I get RPG news from the Tome Show Roundtable and fantastic interviews on Gamer to Gamer. Well, thank you for that beautiful ABAB rhyme scheme uh, and for being just a general awesome dude who loves RPGs and supports the RPG community in a positive, amazing way. Uh, Everyone, please check out I Guess a Hedron 20. And remember, we need your reviews. Make me say anything you want. Please use the affiliate links at thetomeshow.com whenever you shop on Amazon or the DMs Guild to help support the show. You just go to thetomeshow.com, then click on the banner in the show notes for this episode or any other episode for Amazon or the DMs Guild, and then just shop as you normally would. I'd also like to thank our sponsor for this podcast, noblenight.com. My product pick from Noble Knight for this episode is the 4th edition D&D adventure E3, The Prince of Undeath. This adventure is available for 14 bucks in very good condition from noblenight.com. There's a direct link over in the show notes for this episode. Check it out. It's an epic level adventure where your characters fight Orcus. That's right. Fourth edition to honor Joe and Topher, who are panelists on this podcast and love fourth edition D&D. Now, here with me to tell you more about Noble Knight is the one and only Prince of Undeath himself, Orcus. Well, hey everybody, it's me, Orcus. I know, I talk kind of weird, I promise I'm big and scary, but uh, podcasting is an auditory medium primarily. Anyway, I'm here to tell you about Noble Knight, my favorite brick-and-mortar game store that also exists online. That's right, they have D&D, other tabletop RPGs. You can get anything, any edition, any product. Why? Because Noble Knight will even buy your products you aren't using anymore. Well, thanks, Orcus, for uh, for coming here and being on the show. Well, why don't we get right to our panel? All right, everybody, today we are talking about some changes to this season of organized play, and then we've got an interview with the one and only Mike Shea about his book, Fantastic Locations. But first, let's meet our panel and kick things off with our get-to-know-you question. Who is your favorite superhero, and what D&D race class combination are they? Uh, with me back at the roundtable is the one and only Joe Listowski. Joe, how are you? What's your answer to the get-to-know-you? 
I'm doing great, James. Uh, my answer is actually going to be Wolverine, uh, not the old Wolverine, but the current Wolverine, Laura Kinney, formerly known as X-23. Uh, and I think she is uh, the embodiment of all of the new Ranger class that was just released in Unearthed Arcana. Um, nice. nice. She, she's got a, the current storyline. They've got like an animal companion. They actually have a Wolverine living in the apartment with her. And uh, a lot of the cool features they added in with that uh, that article, which I know we're not talking about that, but uh, I really feel like it just it feels very Wolverine-ish to me, and and I think uh, I think that's what she would be. And race-wise, you know, whatever gets uh, whatever we can do to get her a little bit of healing factor, but uh, class-wise, I think she's all of those Rangers. Nice, nice. That's uh, that's very very cool. Yeah, it's true. Uh, superheroes often uh, have multiple paths within the same class, right? Multiple archetypes, or in this case, conclaves that they get. Uh, so I think that's that's a great choice. Uh, really nice going with the new Wolverine. I like that a lot. Uh, also back at the round table is Topher Cohen. <laughs> Topher, welcome back. Do you notice anything about my pronunciation of your last name? You had it wrong? Oh, I did. It's Topher Cohen, right? There you go. <laughs> uh, Topher Cohan, who is your favorite superhero and what race class combo are they in D&D? All right, so uh, I'm a big Green Arrow fan. I understand there are many who are going to be yelling now, he's just a poor man's Batman, but who cares? <laughs> he's fun. Um, and I think the Kevin Smith version of it from the early 2000s Quiver series is the one I Good most call. likely um, refer to. And um, that one, I think, is obviously a human, and I obviously think it's a ranger multi-classed into a rogue. Ah, Ooh. nice, nice. That's a nice choice, and that is a great comic series. People should definitely, definitely check that out. Quiver uh, saved Green Arrow from, from going away. If you are a comic book fan, go find Kevin Smith's Green Arrow. It's yes. uh, ten issues. Read it. You will love everything about it. Yeah, it saved the Green Arrow comic book franchise, practically. Yeah, uh, it did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, also new to the roundtable today is, I'm very excited about this guest. Uh, he's got the great first name. It's James Floyd Kelly is with us. <laughs> James, uh, welcome to the roundtable. Uh, for purposes of this podcast, uh, we are going to refer to you as Jim, uh, because that's what your friends call you, and we are all your friends. Uh, but people might know you as that name. Uh, why don't you tell people, before we get to the get to know you question, tell people a little bit about your history with tabletop RPGs, since this is your first round table sure and i'll try to make it fast um my name is jim kelly i, I write under james floyd kelly i'm a writer for a living i started uh with DD back in 1980 uh sixth grade um played all the way through high school uh got lost during college and getting out and getting a career going and i returned two years ago with 5e so um i'm mainly a dm Topher. uh Topher allowed me to join him at Adventures League here in Atlanta at our local comic book store, gaming store, and I, uh, I began as a player one season, and then I went right back into the DMing, which is what I've always done. So um, uh, that's my gaming history in a nutshell. Wow. Nice, nice. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's great to have you on. People may know you from uh, all of the wonderful articles that you write online, um, which are really, really great to read. People should definitely check this gentleman out. Uh, but who is your favorite superhero and what race class combo are they? 
Well, it's uh, bear with me. It's going to sound a little boring, but it's sort of timely. I am a huge, huge Doctor Strange fan, and you know, there's a new movie coming out, and um, I have all I have a lot of the old Marvel stuff where he fought Dormammu and Nightmare, and I whenever I play D and D, which is rare, but when I play, I typically play a spell slinger, and I love the wizard sorcerer class. Um, so uh, it would be you know Doctor Strange. I love the I love spells i love the idea of moving between planes and things like that so um i'm going to actually be playing this season with the giant uh the giant uh storyline and i'm going to be playing for the first time my nine-year-old son is going to be joining me he's going to play a fighter and i'm going to play a sorcerer awesome that's awesome that's really really cool uh topher yeah let's not let jim undersell himself here we've all seen the chris perkins uh, Acquisition Incorporated, uh, you know, elaborate little setup they have with all the 3D scenery and such. <laughs> That's right. Correct. Well, yeah, James or Jim, as his friends call him, I call him that guy that makes us all look bad, uh, <laughs> is the guy that brings in multi tiered, multi dimensional 3D objects to set his table up to give his players that fully immersive experience and to make all the rest of the DMs flip him off. So let's yes. be really clear. <laughs> and they do. And they do. And um, but no, having having Jim at the store is fantastic. He's a he's a, one of my great DMs at Titans Game to Comics and Smyrna and he's fantastic. But I wanted to point out that he does he goes he's one of those DMs who goes the extra mile and makes sure the players have a really great experience. You know if you're gonna kill a player, kill him in three D. You know that's what I <laughs> very true, very true. Well we're talking about organized play. Uh, there have been some changes to the D D Adventurers League this season and specifically we want to talk about in store play today on the round table. Um which is why we have these fine gentlemen here. Uh, Joe, uh, you are at Modern Myths uh, Gaming in East Hampton, Massachusetts, uh, where uh, you basically run the Adventurers League there, right? In that game store? We're in Northampton, actually. But oh, yes. sorry. Sorry. Jeez. It's okay. That's, yeah. I've, I've, been, I've been running D&D at our store in Northampton uh, since uh, the early days of 4th edition. And uh, we also have another store in Mamaroneck, New York, that's also uh, doing pretty much the same thing we're doing at the Northampton store. Cool, cool. Yeah, and I know you work very hard at that. Uh, Topher, uh, you were a, uh, an RC for a while, and uh, you still do a lot of work uh, at Titans Games and Comics, and that is also where you DM, right, Jim? Yes, I do. Uh, so, uh, which is in Smyrna, Georgia, we should, we should chat out. Uh, so great places where if you want to play D and D with these fine gentlemen and you're in the area, you should definitely, definitely go check it out. So here's what we want to talk about, right? There've been some changes made to the fifth season of the Adventurers League, the Storm King's Thunder season, if that's what you are playing at your store. Um, we can uh, we can sort of rattle off some of them here. Uh, we know big changes include um, the player's guide has sort of been slimmed down and streamlined. There's uh, differences in the way magic items are traded. They've made that a lot easier. Uh, as long as players are kind of keeping track of their paperwork, it's okay. There are uh, new options, right? People are going to be able to use Volo's Guide to Monsters uh, when it comes out. Uh, there is also, uh, it sounds like stores and conventions are both going to have to start paying 
for uh, what are traditionally the D&D Expeditions adventures. Um, for the model, because of the way adventure writers are paid, uh, you can get the first chapter of Storm King's Thunder for free, and that's anybody can get it on the DMs Guild right now. Um, uh, I think it was for stores to be able to play in, but also, uh, you know, a- anybody who wants to play it can really uh, grab it. Um Magic item certificates, right? There are special in-store only magic item certs now. Is that correct? For the first chapter of Storm King Thunder, yeah. For if, if a store runs it, then your local coordinator should have gotten to you and gotten you those certs. If not, reach out. But yeah, there, there's a, uh, some flavor items that came out with that. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, and so we're, we're going to talk about all of these changes and more. I'm sure that uh, that I'm leaving some out, and these guys will help me hit them up as they come up. Uh, full disclosure, uh, I am going to try to take a little bit more of a backseat in this discussion than I normally would, uh, just because uh, I wrote one of the adventures for Storm King's Thunder this season. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I am gonna not be biased in this discussion i'm gonna ask the questions and interpret uh and we're gonna go from there uh so joe lestowski uh why don't we start with you it was your idea to kind of have this podcast um uh, and why don't you tell us uh, what you're thinking about these changes and how they affect the stores all right well uh first off i want to say that from a corporate standpoint i don't think i officially speak for all of modern myths so I, I, this is just my personal experiences at the store i don't want to sound like i'm you know speaking as the store but uh it really feels in a lot of ways over the past years that um wizards of the coast has been in the process of slowly abandoning the stores and and uh taking away support that uh used to be uh much more uh prolific and and uh frequent uh for stores, uh, we are we are still running Adventures League at Modern Myths because of the costs associated with trying to buy adventures for every DM that runs uh, at the store. We've decided instead to to just run the uh, the hardcover adventure out of Storm King's Thunder, and uh, it's difficult because that's uh, I mean either way, even if we if we were running. Uh, the DMs Guild stuff, or out of the hardcover, it's not exclusive to our store. There's no real reason for people to want to come to our store instead of just play it at home, other than the fact that we have DMs there running it. And so it's it's just made it harder to get people into the store playing D&D and then buying D&D products from us because they can get them all online uh, elsewhere uh, without having to leave their home. And so that that's in a nutshell, kind of what it feels like is that as a as somebody who plays at a store, who works at a store, it feels like there's just not as much uh, concern coming from the people at the top at Watsi uh, to try to get people into stores, uh, which is, I feel, the, the front lines of the battle to get new players into, uh, into D&D. Sure, yes. Uh, you know, I think uh, a lot of people learn to... Uh to play at stores. Uh, I think that is definitely true. And I think a lot of people, if they have not played in a while, or if they move to a new city, the way they find people to play with, right, is by going to a store. Um, and, uh, and if the locals aren't coming back for, for any reason, then there's nobody there for new people to play with. Right. Um, right. So, uh, again, just interpreting, uh, what you're bringing up. Uh, I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, Topher, 
do you uh, agree with this uh, interpretation of the new Adventurers League rules? Yeah, and I wouldn't call them new. Let's be really clear about this. Since 5th edition, even the end of 4th edition, when they did away with the, here was a piece of content that was only available to be run at inside of a store for encounters, went away, and they went to the you, anybody can buy it off-the-shelf model. Once that went away, then I think that they made a slow march away from feeling like the store, the brick-and-mortar Wednesday night place was important to them. And I'm not sure why. Somewhere along the line, they felt like the convention was a more important place for them. Maybe they felt like they already had, they were preaching to the choir, they didn't need to keep supporting as as vehemently or as as verbosely as the word I should probably use, the source. Uh, I understand there's a cost involved producing a piece of content that's only available and given away relatively cheaply or free, depending on when you came along the fourth edition, to a store is not inexpensive for a company the size of Wizards of the Coast. I understand they're owned by Hasbro, but they have their own budget. They, you know, they have to work within that. So I understand that that's just part of the concern. But I think that it's been happening since before 5th edition came out. And so I think now we're finally at a place where they're, they're no longer playing lip service. They're no longer pretending that they're supporting the store. And you know what? I, I, I want to say this really quickly here, James. The people in the Adventurers League organization, who I was a regional coordinator for the Southeast uh, for before I stepped down, are good people, and they're working really hard, and they're working within a set of guidelines and rules that is given to them by WOTC. So when I want to make sure that people understand that they, these people are, are volunteering and donating a lot of their time and effort to grow this hobby that we all love. Mm-hmm. That said... If any of them want to come and, and, and tell me that I'm wrong, that they still care about sports stores, I'd love to hear that because I'd call BS on them. <laughs> Wizards of the Coast has all but blatantly walked away from caring about Dungeons and Dragons being played on a regular basis inside of the store. And if you don't believe that, go to DM Guild right now and look at the fact that you can buy everything and play it at home, right? And the only quote-unquote new content that's not in a hardbound book you got to pay 50 bucks for has been premiered at conventions, and then you got to turn around and buy it, i.e. Baldwin Games. I think that this is the moment when, when, when we all knew it was going to happen. I think we saw it going that way, and I think it's there. It disheartens me greatly that this is the, how it is. And the fact that they're making stores who, by the way, are selling their product, promoting their product, the, the front line pay for these adventures is is ridiculous is completely and, and utterly asinine but that's just my opinion what do i know <laughs> uh joe well i just wanted to say that it's not like wizards of the coast has gotten a directive from hasbro that they can't provide things to stores uh we recently uh we're a week, as we record this, we're a week out from the pre-release of the new Kaladesh set for Magic the Gathering, and my store got in, I want to say, 20 different, like, multi-piece airship things that we could put together and hang around the store, and all these cool promo items and things, and it felt like the sort of stuff they used to send stores for D&D back in the 4th edition days, 
here's a bunch of cool stuff that's going to make everybody want to look at all the magic stuff and get excited about the new magic thing coming out. And that's Wizards of the Coast as well. And I understand the magic branch of Wizards makes a crap ton more money than the D&D branch does. But it, I just want to say that it's not like those mechanisms aren't in place. It's still possible to get those things to stores. It really just feels like a conscious choice was made not to. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, I think anytime that happens, right, someone has made the choice to uh, to stop for whatever reason, you know, maybe financially it's not working out or or uh, or they don't see a viable strategy to it. Um, you know, I think there's there's lots of reasons why somebody can do that or somebody just decides that's a bad idea and they tell people to stop. You know, somebody with uh, the power to do so decides that. Uh Jim, uh, what do you think yes. about the uh, the recent Season 5 changes? Well, you know, I came in two years ago when 5e was released, so I, I didn't go through the 4th four, edition stuff like what Topher's talking about. But I, 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 come on, I come at this from two different directions. One, because I am a writer. I write for a living. And I don't make a living if I don't get paid for what I write. So when the announcement about DMs Guild, you know, was made and I realized that, hey, if you want to write an adventure, you can put it out there for a few dollars and you might, you know, you might make a little money on it. I don't think, I don't think anybody thinks you're going to make, you know, <laughs> a living off of writing new D&D content. But I understand the reason and, and, I, and I sort of understand the draw for DMs Guild, but I'm going to take Topher's side on this because I'm a DM. I, you know, I spend a lot of my time prepping for my games on Wednesday night. Um, I love seeing new players come sit at my table. Uh, I, I can't speak for other other gaming stores, but Topher can back this up. That here in Smyrna at, at Titan Games and Comics, we we get a good influx of new players. Probably a smaller ratio of of new players, but we do see them almost on a weekly, if not weekly, every other week basis. We get some new player or players coming in the door, and. I, I think Wizards needs to really take a step back and examine, you know, th this is our hobby. We love our hobby. We love our game. And I'm worried. I'm worried that if we don't get in new blood, if we don't get younger players coming and visiting, that D&D &D is eventually going to go away when all us older guys sort of, you know, go away. And so Adventures League serves a purpose. It I mentioned my nine-year-old son. You know, my nine-year-old son can play at a home game with me, but I don't run a home game. I, I like the organized play, and because of that, my nine-year-old is going to have a chance to go and sit at a table, learn the rules, get some social, you know, ask, see the social aspect of the game. And I, I just, I sort of worry that Wizards of the Coast is not understanding that the future of D&D um, really can lie in these stores being open and and being in, uh, inviting to new players to come in and by like so Topher said by charging for these adventures to the DMs or to the stores we're risking we're risking some stores just totally cutting out adventures league and we're and we're risking some DMs not me who might say you know what I don't want to pay for the adventure I'll just run one offs and and what's the point of that if you're not running sort of a you know something that's been prepared and everyone else is doing it and can talk about it and, and enjoy it. You know, um, you were just saying, Jim, that you started when 5th edition began. And uh, Topher, you know, I, we had a podcast a long time ago, I guess about almost 
you know, two and a half, three years ago now about that, about, you know, what was it like now? And it seemed like there was a revitalization. We had Mike Lonow, who is one of the managers at Titans Games and Comics, uh, come on and, and talk about that. And obviously, you know, the excitement of the new edition was there. Um, people could only get expedition adventures by playing at stores and conventions. Uh, and so do you think that, this, uh, you know, I, I know you had said earlier, like, it's sort of started since the beginning of 5th edition, but do you think that um, that the changes now are going to have, like, a drastic impact and kill off some of that enthusiasm? Uh, and have you seen a decline since we had that podcast? So, yes, in the fact that... <laughs> yes, to multiple answers. Um Yes, into the fact that uh, I have players now who, when they reach out the uh, meetup, which is what the store uses, or they um, talk to me at the store, they put them in touch with me, talk about it. And it's a lot of Adventures League, it seems like, to the new player, right? Let me be very clear about this. To the new person walking in the door, Adventure League is a lot of what you can't do, not what can you do. Mm. You can't play this race. You can't do this. You can't do this. You can't take this. You can't. Right, because you got to fit in these rules so that you are basically the same. So you can take your player, your 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 character to another store, to another convention, to right. So there's a lot of what you can't do, and that, and they're seeing that as a, as a roadblock of coming in. The fact that we are now in our last couple weeks of at Titan Game Comics, when we're by the time of this recording, our last couple weeks of the Curse of Strahd, and. If a new player walks in the door, according to Adventures League rules, they have to start at level one. Even though the players at the table are level eight or nine. Right? So it's <laughs> it, it, it's tough. It's really tough. I had a long conversation with our game manager just yesterday about do we want to, for season six, not run Adventures League and mm-hmm. just run the hardbound as a non-Adventures League thing? Because of all of the, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. And there's a lot of, you know, uh, rules and regulations. So I, I think that James is right. We have, a, we have a lot of tables. We're packed every Wednesday night. We have new players coming in. You know, uh, the adventure, uh, Acquisition Incorporated always helps us and always drives more players. That always helps because people get see it and there's buzz around it. But I think that overall we're seeing less new players, A. And B, once they find out what the boogie is, they're like, oh, well, okay, well, then I'll just wait till the next season starts, or cool, thanks, I'll see if I can find a home game. Mm. Yep, That's what I'm seeing. Gotcha. And Joe, are you seeing similar things? Uh, I am. I am not not in, I, maybe not at, at the same extent, uh, because we have a lot of players that just have been coming to our store forever and will always keep coming to our store, but uh, you know, we get some new players in, we try to, we try to sell them on the new edition even even if we're already you know halfway through a season and everybody's level three or or whatnot and there have been times where if i've had a new person show up uh who's never played D before and just wants to sit sit down you know i'll print up a third level pre-gen for them to use i i know they're not going to a convention or anything else uh right you know official adventures league wise that they just want to sit down and try out D D. And the fact that we're running an Adventures League game that happens to be with everybody at third level means they're not going to have fun if they're stuck at first level. So I have done things where I've just printed out pregens at an appropriate level for new people coming in, uh, and that seemed to work okay. I know that technically that probably invalidates something or, or makes 
other other stuff not valid anymore or, or not not it usable elsewhere. But all of our players pretty much just want to play at our store, and they're not really convention goers, so they're not they're not shopping their characters around. Uh, so we found that a little bit of fudging the rules uh, can can be helpful if it's going to help people have fun with the game. Jim. Yeah. yeah, I had a question for Jim. Oh, okay. go ahead. Right. Yes, go ahead, so, Topher. Being a professional writer, right, you make your living writing. How, what's your feelings on the DMs Guild and the ability that, as you said earlier, anybody, I, who have a full-time job and if not a writer, can write an adventure and go up there and, and make and charge two bucks for it. I think, do you think that devalues how much adventures are worth? I guess it's for James also, since you have a, um, a published adventure. Do you think it devalues how much your your worth is as a writer? That now that anybody can buy it and publish stuff up there for two bucks, uh, well, you know this, bucks, um, yeah. or five this, bucks, or ten bucks, or whatever. Well, this same argument happened to quite a few years ago when Amazon, you know, just opened up and allowed anybody to self-publish their books. You know, there was there was a lot, a lot of discussion about. You're a professional writer. Are you worried that people, you know, you're going to lose sales because so and so is now publishing their own books and, and skipping around? They're skipping around the traditional publishing route. And what people have really found is it hasn't stolen any money from those who call themselves, you know, professional writers. What happens is it's it's sort of things just sort of fall in place. If you write good stuff, people find it, they spread the word, and you write more because your sales go up. And the good stuff sort of prospers. If you write garbage, uh, you don't get the rev- good reviews. You don't get sales. Your stuff kind of gets pushed down the line, and eventually you just stop writing. Or you know, that's and that's what that's what happens with Amazon. With DMs Guild, they've got a pretty good search feature there, and they've got a review feature built in. And um, I've actually considered submitting some some things to DMs Guild, and um, I I haven't yet. But I'm not worried. I figure if I spend the time to write something and I put it out there, I'll, I'll request a, what I feel is a reasonable fee for it. I don't know what that would be. And then I'll let the, I'll let the public decide. You know, If they like it, great. They'll buy it. They'll ask for more. I'll write sequels. If they don't buy it, that tells me that it's not a viable um, platform for me to write to. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree 100%. I have a lot of pay-what-you-want stuff up there. Uh, because uh, for a lot of reasons. One is because it's all stuff that was available on my blog first, and when I posted it on the blog, I said, this will always be uh, a thing you can get for free. But at the same time, I saw an opportunity when the DMs Guild launched, like, hey, I have all this stuff, and there's not a ton of stuff on here yet. You know, maybe this will help me get my name out there if I start, you know, putting stuff on there that I have ready to go. Um, so I wanted to keep that promise to my blog readers, and I also wanted to get on the DMs Guild, so that was the way I did it. Uh, and uh, I don't know, you know, I think a lot of people would argue, like, that devalues your work or that, but it also helped create work for me later. Um, and I feel like, I guess I feel like it doesn't devalue the Adventurers Guild stuff in the sense that, like, if you look at what the top sellers on the DMs Guild are... Um, things with those Adventurers League, uh, you know, DDAL in front of them or DDEX in front of them sell way better than 
some equally well-written adventures, uh, you know, some by the same exact authors, right? Like Teos Abadia has stuff on there, um, an adventure he self-published that isn't part of the Adventurers League, and his Adventurers League adventures sell better. Um, so I think that branding uh, definitely helps people. Uh, on that subject, kind of, of payment, right? Uh, so writers this season, we've talked about this before on the podcast, writers this season are getting paid in royalties only from the DMs Guild. And the idea is that, like, you'll over time you'll make more money than if we paid you a straight-up word rate. And uh, as part of that, to help compensate the writers better, they've decided that stores and conventions should now have to pay since writers are being, uh, you know, paid through royalties only. Uh, And again, they is probably like somebody up at the top somewhere at Hasbro uh, don't necessarily blame Robert Aducci, right, for this uh, (laughs) decision. Like, oh, man, what did he do? But I, you know, again, just uh, with that in mind, what do you guys think about that point specifically? Um, Because I feel like that is kind of a sticking point that I haven't really heard a lot of people talking about. And uh, let's start with you, Jim, on this one. You know, as a DM, if Topher comes to me and says, hey, Jim, I need you to DM next season. And oh, by the way, you need to drop, you know, $8 or $12 to, to buy this set of adventures. You know, of course, I have to step back and say, okay, can I afford that? Well, you know, I, I buy the new books when they come out. I, you know, when Curse of Strahd released, I went and ran down to the store and bought it and read it cover to cover because I knew I was going to be DMing it. Um, and I paid my own money for that. What I'm hearing from Topher and what I'm sort of in agreement is, is that, you know, if you're if you're trying to grow your your product and that's D and D, you're you're sort of shooting yourself in the foot by saying we want to grow the we want to grow our audience, but we also want to charge. Uh, charge the, those who aren't familiar with our product just to get in the door. I, I, I'm a big believer that the first hit should be free, and and by first hit I mean Adventures League. Let's let's look at Adventures League as the gateway. And I hate to use the I hate to use that metaphor, but let's let's call it that. And you know it's the gateway drug. You get somebody in the door and you show them a really good game. You give them two hours or more of of where they are smiling and rolling dice and they're laughing and and just enjoying the story. Um, chances are they're going to come back, and chances are they're going to go buy the player's handbook because that's typically the first thing they want to reach for. And if they decide, hey, I'd like to try my hand at DM, well, now they got to buy the DM guide and the monster manual. So I, I, I'm with Topher. I, I, I disagree in the charging of DMs and the stores to run the games if your goal there is to grow your audience. If it's just regulars, if, if you're just going after regular players, you know, I I, I don't see the point. I, I, I could understand charging a little bit, but if the whole point of Adventures League is for us to generate new audience members to come and play the game, we need to make the DMs, um, we need to give the DMs everything they can, every tool they can, every freebie we can to encourage them to want to roll. And Topher can speak on this. It's hard to get DMs. So, you know, throw, let's throw another obstacle in there and charge them for the adventure. Uh, Topher, would you like to speak on that? Yeah, uh, Jim is right. I every Wednesday I get up and give my little hey, thanks for coming, you know, blah 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 speech, and uh, of course I pimp, you know, the round table and you know worldbuilderblog.me. Of course, uh, of he course, really does. Um, I really do. Um, but I mean, so on top of that, now I have to say, oh, by the way, 
here's here's how it's going to work. Now, I think one of two things is going to happen, right? So as James, as Jim said, you know, I'm the DMs have to purchase the hardbound book, which is what we're going to run next season. Uh, Mike at Titans gives them a pretty sizable discount to mm. you know as a yep. thank you for, for for DMing, right? So that's a win, right? And if you know, we decided. So we are currently finishing up the third season of what was called Expeditions because we only play once a month for those on Sundays. Sure. Um, and so, what, you know, and we're, we're going to do season four after that. When season five comes around, and it's time to start, you know, purchasing them. I'm sure what'll happen is Mike and I and Katie will sit down and have a conversation, and we will decide that the store is going to purchase them, right? And then you know, give them to the DMs as a thank you, right? But here's what's going to happen at less scrupulous stores or at less scrupulous or I shouldn't say even less scrupulous stores that are not financially or conventions are not financially able to right they're going to buy a copy make copies of it and give it out so in the long run just because a convention is running seven tables of adventure 5-1 right, right four times doesn't mean they're buying it that many times there's no way to know that. There's no way to, to quantify that. There's no way to confirm that. Sure. sure. Right. And from a store perspective, right, like the people buying something, like it's not even like we're giving it to the store and then we're charging the DM to run it and the store gets a take of that, right? Um, right. Is, and right. yeah. And, and so, and then I as a writer lose out too because. And stores like Titans, yeah, is Mike is adamant to not charge the players. I, James and I, uh, when uh, uh, James and I first started playing together, we played at a store that would charge a dollar a head for D and D, which made mm. sense because we weren't buying anything. Mm-hmm. If you bought something, you didn't get charged a dollar. But if you weren't buying anything, you charged a dollar. There's cost to having people sit in your store for four to two to four hours with you know electricity and heat and water and such, right? All those kind of things. And so uh, Mike is adamant about not wanting to charge. So if we're running expeditions or Adventures League modules, whatever you want to call them now. He's actually losing money. Yeah, that's very true. Joe? Uh, so I wanted to say uh, we got around the charging people for D&D at Modern Myths by uh, we, we have what we call a day pass. It's a $5 pass that you buy, but then that turns into $5 of store credit that you can use on other stuff in the store. So it's kind of like a two-drink minimum where you're getting people to – purchase something in the store or to you know give us five dollars and then never use it but uh either way we're, we're making a little bit of, of money that way we're, we're generating some kind of sales so that's kind of how we got around the not wanting to just charge people to come play D, but also not wanting to completely lose money on it um one thing i did want to say about you'd mentioned earlier the difficulty in getting dms one thing that uh, if there's a, a silver lining to this uh trends of where where D organized play is going is that it has seemed to me like the adventures have been getting easier for dms to run uh as they've gone forward and certainly the storm king's thunder uh feels that way uh it's got the little flow chart in the beginning it's got all sorts of different decision I points agree. and different options and spoilers things. spoilers <laughs> I won't tell you everything in there but uh and then having having read adventure 5-01 as well uh, it felt like this is something that if a DM were to pick it up, they could run it fairly easily. So from that standpoint, if you're a DM at a store, it's it's not going to be as hard to pick up and run. It's just that you've got to pay for it in order to get that. And that's, that's I think, 
you know, it's it's great that the adventures are more accessible, and it's great that they're they're tapping other awesome writers like yourself, James, uh, to to give us these adventures. Um, but that that money thing for a lot of people, I mean, a, a lot of the a lot of the people that come and play D anD D are are not folks that have incomes that they can just blow lots of money on stuff, and so so charging people for things is is definitely gonna be a sticking point. And if they're already, you know, I think Jim made a good point. If he's already picking up the hardback, maybe he'll just run the hardback. Then why would he buy extra adventures, you know? And <laughs> uh, maybe you'll just buy the big hardback adventure you drop $50 on rather than spend more money on other adventures, right? I'd like to say, you know, we as DMs, and Topher, you're a DM. Uh, Joe, I assume you DM. Yep. We, we don't do it for the money, you know? We... <laughs> We DM because we we love. There's something about DMing. We can't put. It, maybe we can put a finger on it. For me, I love, I love just having a group of friends around the table, and I love telling them a story and letting them sort of. They're the ones that are sort of making the story, and I'm just setting up some barriers here and there for them to overcome. The whole thing about being a DM is it's a voluntary thing. We volunteer our time. Uh, we we put in way more time than we are at the table. If you're a good DM you know that you're spending way many more hours at home preparing for that two-hour game. And so I just, you know, I'm hoping if anybody at Wizards is listening, you know, I just want to appeal to them and say, look, this is a hobby that we love. We want it to continue. And you guys need to find a way to 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 help the stores and help the DMs that are in the chairs uh, want to be there. Give me a reason to be there. And uh, I do it for the new players. I do it for my son who hasn't started playing yet. I do it for those players that show up and go, yeah, I've never played, but I'd really like to sit. I'm like, sit down. Let's do this. <laughs> that's great. That's uh, that's the kind of thing we need more of um, for sure. Uh, does anybody else have anything they want to say before we wrap up? Yeah, I got one quick thing, go ahead. Uh, James. I think that – and I think – Anyone involved with the production of Dungeons and Dragons will agree with this statement. Is the fact that GMD is more popular now than it's been since since, since the heyday in the eighties. You know, it's we it's it's talked about mainstream. It's no longer oh, it's that thing you do on Saturdays in the basement, and it's all looked at kind of side glance. It's by far way more popular now than it has been in decades. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that popularity has to be tied to the organized play movement that was started in 4th edition with the encounter system and uh, allowing people to sit down for two hours on a Wednesday at their local friendly gaming slash comic book store and play D&D again. I think that's got to be, because then it brought people like me and it brought people like Jim and it brought, you know, and you A, made friends, B, now Jim can bring his son in and grow it. I think there has to be credit given to that, and that's what hurts me from a lover of this hobby from specifically Dungeons and Dragons. I love RPGs, but specifically our uh, Dungeons and Dragons. What makes me hurt inside is the fact that them going away from it. I think they're they're for losing sight of what got them to this moment. All right. Well, uh, I think we definitely want to know what people out there think about this. Uh, so uh, hit us up over at thetomeshow.com or at facebook.com slash thetomeshow and let us know. Let us know if you're playing to D&D in a store and give your store a shout out, man. Let people know, hey, this is where we're playing D&D and we're having a great time. Um, so restore Topher's faith uh, that uh, that people will continue to play in stores as well and uh, my own. <laughs>
uh, so, um, but yeah, guys, thank you so much for coming on to talk about this. I know this isn't necessarily the easiest conversation to have. Uh, so where can people find you on the internet to yell at you and tell you you are wrong? Joe Lestowski. <laughs> Uh, I can be found at James Intercasso. At, uh, <laughs> no, no, I am. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Joe Listowski. Uh, I'm also on Facebook. You'll see me commenting in the D and D Adventures League forums uh, and the Fifth Edition D and D forums as well. And uh, if you're in Western Massachusetts, if you want to swing by uh, Modern Myths Comics and Games in Northampton, I uh, hope to uh, maybe sit down at a table and roll some dice with you. Nice. Yeah, I got to get up there at some point because I would love to do that with you as well. Uh, Topher, how about you? Where can people find you? Uh, they can also find me at James Intercasso. <laughs> at, no. um, they can find me on the Twitters at TopherATL. That's T-O-P-H-E-R-A-T-L. And they can find me on the Facebook at Topher Cohan, T-O-P-H-E-R-K-O-H-A-N. I am honest to God serious. If you disagree with me, I want to hear it. I want I want to be proven wrong. I want to be wrong about this. I want other people to let me know that I am I have a, 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 a myopic view of this and it's too narrow and that the hobby is doing great at, at your local friendly gaming store. So reach out and let me know that. Um, that said, uh, if you are living in the um, the Metro Atlanta area and Come on over to Smyrna on a Wednesday night. You can find me and Jim there almost every Wednesday playing some D&D. Stop by and say hi. At Titans Game to Comics in Smyrna, Georgia. Excellent, excellent. And Jim, where can people find you? I uh, I write mainly for geekdad.com, G-E-E-K-D-A-D.com. Uh, it's voluntary. I submit usually a post a week to keep my name you know, on the masthead. But um, I write a lot. Uh, since 5e, I, I've really increased my... Articles. I write a lot on RPGs, specifically D&D. So, yeah, geekdad.com is where you can find a lot of the things I write about our hobby. Excellent. Excellent. Well, that is awesome. People should definitely check out geekdad.com. Remember that Jim writes under the name James Floyd Kelly. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being on the roundtable today. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you, James. All right, now let's hear my interview with Mike Shea of SlyFlourish.com about his book, Fantastic Locations, available now. Okay, everybody, now I am here with my good friend and an amazing game designer, Mike Shea of Sly Flourish. Mike Shea, welcome back to the roundtable, man. It's good to have you. I am I am one of those two things. <laughs> and uh, now I'm just going to leave you in suspense about which one it is. Oh, see, the... The personal side of me hopes that it is a friend, <laughs> but the factual side of me knows that you're a great game designer. Oh no! Oh, no. <laughs> uh, so, Mike, uh, you know, you came on the show a while ago. We talked about fantastic locations, but for people who may have missed that podcast or who uh, sadly missed the Kickstarter, what is fantastic locations? Uh, fantastic locations now now is a thing. <laughs> uh, where I think last time we talked about it, it wasn't yet a thing. It was not. It was um, an idea. And I'm now literally holding a copy in my hands. <laughs> uh, so Fantastic Location is a 91-page, uh, the physical copy anyway, is a 91-page, 8.5 by 11 book that contains uh, 20 fantasy locations that you can drop into 
hopefully drop into any fantasy role-playing game uh, to make uh, your game master's life easier. Um, nice. it's, it's, its intent is that you're running your own campaign, either a published adventure or a, uh, a, a published campaign setting or your own thing, and you, you're kind of an ad, ad hoc DM. You want to you sort of let the game flow and suddenly need a place to have things happen. And uh, it's hard. Of, of the many things that you can come up with and pull out of your ass, one of the hard ones is cool places. And knowing this, I said, why don't I, why don't I put together a book that's just cool places uh, without monsters and without plots already wired in and without, you know, kind of the all of the seeds that you expect in a traditional published adventure. These are just the locations. And you plug in your stories and your plots and your NPCs and your monsters uh, to flesh it out. So that was the intent. Uh, I think it I think it came out that way. So it is a book. It is available at uh, if you go to slyflourish.com, there's a big link on the right hand side um, and you can buy the PDF and you can buy the uh, hard copy version as well. Nice, dude. Let's uh, one of the things that's great about this, right, is that you can use it for, like you said, any game, 13th Age, uh, Fate, Dungeons and Dragons, Pathfinder, whatever. But I want to bring this up because I've seen a lot of people specifically tweeting at Mike Merles, right? Mike Merles sent out this tweet and he said, what do DMs who are not running games, what do they need right now to help them be convinced to run a game. And one of the most requested things was a book of quests or, you know, sort of one-shot quests that they could run. And I feel like this book is that but better uh, because it's super-duper modular, right? Like, I could plug in any monsters that I wanted into a jungle temple. So if mm -hmm. Yuanti is what fits with my campaign, I can do that. Or if it's lizard folk, I could go lizard folk. Or if it's a black dragon and kobolds, I could do that, right? Mm -hmm. um, so do you think that this is one of those books that uh, makes it super easy to plug and play? I hope so. I mean, that was, that was exactly its intent is I think... Uh, I've, you know, some, my wife is the one who has to suffer with all of my complaints about, uh, various parts of the RPG industry, uh, while we take our dog out for walks. And, uh, I mean, years ago I was like, you know, we call them modules, but there's nothing modular about them, right? Like they're all sort of really tightly wired together and there's not a lot of room for things to sort of happen on their own. I, I personally find them really dense and, and hard to digest easily, and, um, you know, and wouldn't it be interesting if modules, I think I actually wrote a, an article on critical hits. I should, I should go look at it and see how close this is to what I had wrote, written about. But I said, like, there's got to be a better way to design a module as like a, a box full of ingredients for making food, right? Like, <laughs> you know, here's your monsters, here's your story seeds, here's your locations, you know, and you kind of mash them together to, to form what you want to form. And, and traditional published adventures just are not are not written that way. And they're certainly not written for brevity um, mm -hmm. or reference. Uh, the one book that I looked at, and I think I'd already sort of been kicking around the idea of fantastic locations before I saw this, but Monty Cook's Numenera Weird Discoveries, 10 Instant Adventures for Numenera. And I like, you know, Numenera is the, the, the game that in some alternate universe I'm playing all the time. Because uh, I love the idea of Numenera, and I like running it a lot, but I just, I'm playing so many other games, I don't really have time. But I bought this book because I said, if I ever want to run Numenera, this this is the book that I want to be able to run it. Yeah. And uh, he very specifically designed, I think they're like four-page adventures that are designed with like, you know, they're very specifically outlined, like, read this part first, 
Uh, these things are important. Uh, read this if you have the time. And read this if you plan on extending the adventure further from what you see here. And it's got like big two-page maps uh, where all of the parts of the maps are, are written right into the blocks. So you don't constantly flip back and forth between the map and everything else. Wow. And that to me felt like, you know, that's the way adventures ought to be written. <laughs> Maybe not all of them. But that's, that's certainly a way that some adventures can be written. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I remember looking at that and, and actually when I got – when I got like my first printed copy, uh, I, I had my, my local gaming group and I dropped fantastic locations on the table and I dropped weird discoveries. And I said, do these feel like the same kind of book to you? Because I wanted the quality and, and the feeling of fantastic locations to sort of match the feeling of weird discoveries. And, and they, they said it did. And I was very happy. You know, it's funny you bring that up. One of my favorite things about Fantastic Locations is that I don't necessarily have to have read a location first before I run it. Like, mm -hmm. uh, yep. you know, if if my group goes off the rails, I can be like, okay, we're, we're in some sort of desert. What do we have that fits in a desert? Okay, we're going with this, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I was shocked at how well that worked and they were impressed because i had art to show them you yep. know um and i never have a picture <laughs> to show my players <laughs> or anything so it's great to be able to say like oh here's what it looks like and here's where you're approaching and um uh, so and was that one of your design goals then was to be able to sort of a dm could have read nothing out of this and be able to run it yeah, that was exactly one of the goals is that you, really the goal is like you can use as little of this as possible and still get something out of it. So, you know, down to the point where like if you do nothing but flip through it and find a piece of art and then come up with your own story about that piece of art, that's perfectly fine. Like that's, you know, I consider that a success. Uh, if you find one room and you say, I just need a chamber, like a throne chamber, but I don't feel like coming up with my own. I'll just pull that one chamber out of that one section and use that. Uh, perfect. You know, that's exactly, you know, that, that, that level of modularity is really what I was going for. And that idea that you don't need to read all this. In fact, um, I make heavy, heavy use of read aloud text, which I think is a controversial topic. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's actually come up on the Tome Show. I think Wolfgang Bauer and I talked about it. And uh, I don't think we exactly disagreed. I certainly would be, you know, woe to disagree with anything Wolfgang Bauer says. But um, <laughs> he was less interested in, in, in read aloud text, mostly because when people write it, they usually write 3,000 words of read aloud text. And, <laughs> and he and I both agree that like three sentences ought to do it. Totally. You know? and particularly for a location, just the three sentences that describe the, the most important parts of the location are, are valuable. But I make heavy use of read aloud text because I know that when I run a game, when I have read aloud text, it means I don't really have to read it ahead of time. I could just read the read aloud text and the players and I could figure it out. <laughs> you know, like We're all learning together when we read it. So um, the book is probably 40% read aloud text when it comes down to it. Like I think if you were to pull out the, the, the few chapters that aren't locations, mm -hmm. uh, like the advice chapters, and then just looked at the raw text, it might, it might be like 50% read aloud text. But that's um, specific for that reference. That, that, yeah, that. yeah, because it immediately tells you these are the things the players need to know about this room or this location, right? That's why I love read aloud text. Is uh, yeah, right, right. You know, it's it's already highlighted, and I don't have to necessarily. I'm reading the first paragraph of something without read aloud text, and I'm like, oh, but do, okay, do I tell them about the closet, or is that a secret closet that yeah. you know? Super, yeah. super helpful to have. I want to ask you when you started thinking about this project, because I have seen 
big, big shades of fantastic locations in another Mike Shea product, which is um, uh, Aeon Wave, uh, which is ah, right. a fate scenario, right? Um, really, really great. Um, but the shades of fantastic locations are there, uh, specifically in sort of how you run the body of the quest. But you also set it up like, hey, if you haven't read through this yet, read this first. Take a break here. If you're the game master, read on and tell your players to go get a drink or something like that. And then it's a very modular, awesome location um, where you call out the details as aspects, right? Because that's how fate works. And then at the end, you have all this advice for if you want to expand. Here's some extra street gangs. Here's how the adventure would continue. Here's how you could break just the events of this adventure into multiple sessions uh so were you already thinking about fantastic locations when you were writing that adventure i think i was uh i think that some of the ideas were were subconsciously so some of the ideas i would certainly been thinking about i don't think the idea of writing fantastic locations was in my head when i was doing aeon wave but again sort of that that you know that idea of like how should adventures be written um, I've been, it's been kicking around my head for, you know, five years at least. And, uh, and I think that came out a lot in Aeon Wave as well. Like how do you build sort of a fun sandbox, sandbox adventure and, and have a product that really supports, you know, does the heavy lifting where the heavy lifting should be done and leaves alone the parts that the DM should be doing. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm going to make a bunch of statements and then probably disagree with them, but you know, <laughs> I, I, I it, it, it feels to me like an adventure isn't doing service to a DM when it tells a DM like how an NPC should run necessarily mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, how a scene should work, right? Like the scene's going to work however it works. And if the DM is, is doing what a DM should do, they're going to react to what the players are doing, what the characters are doing, and it's going to go off the rails anyway. But if a... If, a, if an adventure can kind of say like, hey, we know you're going off the rails, but here's some stuff that's useful for you. Right. So that when it goes off the rails and you need something to run because you don't know where the hell they're going, here's some things you can do. You know, here's a here's the thing you can you can add in. I think that that I think that there's a lot of um, a potential there. You know, I think that there's a lot of uh, ways that that can be done, you know, that isn't currently being done. I mean, I don't you know, I, I wrote a big article about the the value of um published adventures for particularly for D&D right for D&D 5th edition sure and uh, my 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 premise is you know they probably spent i don't remember i i kind of made a number up and i'll make the number up again i i don't have any true data and and and, and everything to back this but i bet you it cost them like on the order of $50,000 to make a product like that mm-hmm. right maybe more in yeah, fact I, yeah. I, it's probably that's probably very conservative um, as, as when I asked Robert Schwab, who has been in that industry, how much it costs to make a product like Curse of Strahd or Storm King's Thunder or Out of the Abyss, uh, he said, you know, quote, a shit ton, <laughs> right? So it costs them so much to make this that for us to not use it, you know, we're, we're like, we pay f- what, 50 bucks for mm-hmm. something that is like a $50,000 product. You know, that's a ton of value. So I oh, think yeah. that published adventures are great. But they're, the way they're written is not, in my opinion, not conducive to the way life runs these days. <laughs> right? Certainly the way life runs for me. Like, you know, probably much like the book has 40% flavor text, 40% of Mike Shea's life is surrounding D&D stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. And, and yet I don't have the time to really sit down and read a published adventure cover to cover. 
Yeah. You know, I'm I'm busy. You know, I got to run it in three days. <laughs> Who the hell's? I mean, I had I went I was like when I got Storm King's Thunder, I'm like, oh, I have a vacation where I'm not going to have internet access for three days. Maybe I'll get to read it, and I still didn't finish it. <laughs> right. So, um, I you know, if you want to get the most value out of an adventure like that, you got to read it. But they're three hundred thousand words. Yeah. Yeah. So my thought is like, well, okay, so, you know, I don't, I don't think those should go away. I, I, I kind of don't want wizards to go down the route of making, you know, super like outline references with lots of bullet points. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a lot of room for a lot of different kinds of products. Some of which may hit this need of, I've got four friends of mine staring at me right now, and I need to run an adventure, and and I want it to be good. Mm-hmm. What do I have that I can do that with? And I'm and I'm I hope I'm sorry I'm rambling, but and I'll circle back around. I hope that a book like Fantastic Locations can help with that. That like, okay, I can come up with a character. I'll pull something out of the show. I, you know, I'm watching Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. I'll pick all my NPCs out of that. You know, so I don't need NPCs. I'll steal a storyline from this. And now I need a place. Uh, let me pull out the book. Uh, I think I'll set it in the Dungeon of Fire. Right. Right. And now you've got like, wow, that's pretty rich. You know, I've got a piece of artwork. I've got this crazy location. I've got interesting characters. I can come up with some monsters. You know, I could run an adventure in five minutes with that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that is exactly what the product does. If I could give it a mini review at the moment, like that would be exactly what I would say is that this is perfect for it's perfect if you're the DM who plans because you can totally use it as in part of your planning strategy. You have these rich locations. You can totally flesh everything out and it'll make your prep easier. But it's also great if you are stuck and need something to do, and you could be stuck because maybe you didn't have time to plan. I'm finding that's the case more and more, right? The the older I get, the less time I have mm-hmm. to spend on prep, um, usually because I'm doing podcasts or whatever. Right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so it's right, the older you get, the less time you have, but there's also situations at the table where the players, for whatever reason, zag when you think they were going to zig. Um, right. And this is also super duper helpful for that. I have players who I think intentionally do the thing <laughs> that you don't want them to do. You know, you could have planned for 10 options and they find an 11th, right? Yeah. Um, right. So this is uh, amazing for that because it feels uh, it feels general enough that you're like, oh, okay, I could set anything here, but it's also specific enough that you get, you know, moods of places. You get a lot of different suggestions for this could run like this, or it could run like this, or you could run it this way. You know, you have those options so that you think like, oh, I want to surprise my players. So this, uh, you know, hidden temple in the woods is actually going to be filled with, you know, um, snow people. And we're going to see how that goes. You know, like it's, it's really easy to mix and match. The modularity of it is incredible. And we should talk about the art. Um, oh, so, yeah. you know, when you were, you, you talked a little bit about the art and the stretch goals and stuff the last time you were here. Um, you smashed through every stretch goal on the Kickstarter, so I yeah. feel like the expectation That's a lot is, of stress. Yeah, yeah. The expectation <laughs> right then is like, well, this better be some good art. Uh, yeah. And how do you think it turned out? Well, you know, talk about a biased opinion. I mean, I think it's absolutely, you know, I love it. I mean, I yes. really, really love the art. I, I love the work that, that, Brian, that Brian Patterson does. Brian, Brian from D20 Monkey is the guy who did all the art for it. For the stretch goals, we had, that was, uh, you know, I don't know, I wouldn't go so far as to say poor planning exactly, but we weren't really ready for the success that we had and we were building stretch goal. And I imagine some Kickstarters run into this. Um, 
that we were coming up with goals while we're, while we're doing them. And the hard part is, um, and this is, you know, sort of a, a Kickstarter lesson, um, that I've, that I has kind of hammered home to me is that money, money isn't always the problem, right? Mm-hmm. Like we, we think of Kickstarter like, Oh, I could do everything if only I had enough money. But, you know, people have lives and people have, you know, none of this is enough that anybody can just go live on it. You know, nobody's like, oh, I'm quitting my job and <laughs> going to go work on this full time now that, you know, now that I got it. Um, and money doesn't get you time and money doesn't give you energy necessarily. Right. <laughs> um, so the, all of the critical things, it doesn't it doesn't give you ideas. You know, it doesn't you know, like the, the money can help parts of it get out of the way and it moves you into that realm of amateur to professional. Mm-hmm. But you know, besides that, it really doesn't do a whole lot for you. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Once you hit those initial goals, you're like, oh, now I need to make something yeah, else, well, I, I guess. <laughs> I, I didn't suddenly gain a- extra hours in the day. Right? Brian didn't suddenly gain extra hours in the day. So a big part of it was like, Brian, you know, I, you know, I, I relied on him almost exclusively for all the art. The cover was done by Guido, Guido Quip. Mm. Um, but he did that very early on. And after that, it was Brian's work. And, um, yeah, yeah. The cover, I love it. Yeah. And, and I've been, I've been staring at it for like almost three years. (laughs) I still love it. Um, you know, so the hard part is it's, it's, it's a lot, it was a lot of work. So a big part of that was, you know, what, what, what can land on Brian's plate, um, Mm -hmm. when it comes to the art and even mine, like I, I only wrote 15 of the 20 locations and that's, you know, I, I had a quarter of the book left to do in rough draft form at the end of the Kickstarter. Anyway, yeah, so the, so the uh, you know, the art, we kind of hemmed and hawed about whether to mix in black and white and color and how much should be maps and how much should be just straight art. And uh, we kind of figured that out after we were done. And, you know, one thing that I kind of, you know, realized is I didn't really want to do maps. Mm. Like there's a couple locations that have maps, but because of the modularity, I don't want to force a DM to run it a certain way. I don't, I don't want it to be you know, like room A to room D and you got to go through a, you know, B and C. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, that way it also, I've, one of the things that's great is right. I have all these rooms. So if I'm at the start of my session, when I reach for the book, I can flesh out the whole session. But if it's in the middle of the session, I can make it a shorter, uh, smaller location. Which is yeah. Great. I mean, I've, I've run, you know, so I have like the, the one that I've had in my hands forever is the first one, the, the, the ziggurats of the doom priest. And I think I've run that like three times. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in some cases it's two rooms, you know, it's like you found a ziggurat and you get through the front door and now you're in the throne room. <laughs> and that's because like, that's, you know, a four hour game and that, that was where we got. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that's a, so, you know, that's perfectly acceptable for a ziggurat, right? Like that yeah, might be exactly how it works. Those need to be like 17 rooms and all these chambers. So if I build a map, well, the map can't be useful for that situation. But if I draw a picture of what it looks like from a bird's eye view, or if I look at it from like, what does the throne room look like? You know, well, that's art that you can use, you know, anytime. In fact, that's art you could use and not even use the text, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so so we we went with all color uh, was one big thing that, you know, because the Kickstarter did so well um, and Brian's work uh, looks great in black and white, but it looks absolutely fantastic, not to keep using that term over and over, in color and, and all of the art uh, that came out. Like, I remember just receiving them. And I still am, by the way. I'm still getting more art from from Brian. Um, and every time I see him, I'm just like blown away, you know, just every time it's like, oh my God, look at this, you know, and sometimes it'll be like, oh my God, look at this. Wait, what's up with that horn in that one corner? That's not what it said in the book. And then I usually, because I told him wrong and you know, then we change the horn and then, oh, now look at it. It's perfect. 
the art is just really great. And what I like about Brian's style is it's not it's not typical to what you see in most fantasy products. Mm. Um, it's very vibrant and and very you know direct and and rich. And I just I just love I love that I look at this book and it doesn't look like any other book that I've seen. You know, the art doesn't look like any other book that I've seen. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I'm just I'm, I'm looking at like the dark abbey and the sun behind the abbey looks like it glows, you know, like the page is glowing. Yeah. Um, so I just yeah, I'm. I'm yeah. I, you know, well, and that's the thing, right? Like it's very distinct. It's very unique and also perfect for this product. I feel like like it just you yeah. the you look at the art and you get so many things out of it. You know, that ziggurats of the doom priests uh, that, that you referenced even the black and white, because I, uh, I have a copy of the color and a copy of the black and white um, here uh, in my house. Even the black and white, you just get so many interesting details. And it's like you said, because it's such a direct style, it's so mm-hmm. nice. He did, he did an amazing, amazing job. This is a, 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 just a great book. Um, and I feel like, you know, obviously you're my friend and everything, but I want to <laughs> shout it from the rooftops that, like, this has made DMing a lot easier for me. And so thank you for that. You're very kind. Yes. Yeah. And, and we, we should, should also talk about, because it is a pretty great deal, um, right? So Because you can get it, uh, you know, if you're like me and you play a lot of games online, you can also get it in PDF. And then you're taking screenshots of the art and throwing them up on Roll20 for your players to see and stuff like that. Like, <laughs> it's incredible. So, um, so, yeah, let's talk about, like, kind of where people can grab this and, uh, and the cost to them. Uh, so the PDF is 20 bucks. Uh, the black and white, uh, is 25 and the color is 30. Uh, you can buy them all, uh, on, if you go to slyflourish.com slash fantastic locations, you can buy it straight there. Uh, I believe it's also up on, um, drive through RPG. Mm. Uh, so you can, you can get it there as well. Gotcha. Uh, but if you, if you can buy it, buy it through slyflourish.com. Yeah. If you buy it from my website, it's, it, that's nicer. <laughs> and you get the PDF direct. No, no DRM. Uh, it's a zip file with the PDF file, and you can move it wherever you want. You can give it to a friend if you want to give it to a friend. If they like it and you like it, it'd be nice if you both paid. Yes. Uh, the only real thing that I don't like is please don't post it on the internet. <laughs> but other than that, I'm, 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 you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy for it to, 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 to see a lot of users. Of course, a lot of use. A lot of use. Yeah, support um, a great creator. And can you buy just the art as well? So the art is coming soon. Uh, for the Kickstarter backers, they have uh, everybody who backed the Kickstarter, I think at the $20 level and above, uh, also received a zip file that contained high-res versions of all of the art um, that you can you know, put on any device or, or you know, print or whatever you want to do. And the total plan... And I don't think I've said it. I'll say it here because you know we're 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 pretty well on our way. Is we're going to add a, a ten more pieces of art. Wow. Uh, yeah, ten more full color pieces of art that Brian's working on. I have four of the color in hand, and I've seen all of the drafts of the black and white. So we're hoping to get that out before the end of the year, and um, that will go out as a zip file as well to the same backers. Uh, so I'll just be updating that one, and that way everybody's got you know, 30, not everybody, but everybody that, that picks it up will have 30 high res pieces of art that they can use. Again, you use them however they want. And then once I have all 30 in hand, I'm going to make another book uh, available for print on demand. That will be a staple bound um, art book that just contains full color, full page pictures of the art. Wow. And I think it'll cost probably about 12 bucks or something like that. It's hard to, I, I don't, hard to gauge the price, but I think it's like 10 or 12 bucks. That's awesome. And, 
and the um, the intent there is like that's your you know you stick that in your DM go bag, right? <laughs> so you know you might you might only need the black and white copy of the main book, and then you can have the color art book. And the art book is like you're on the road or or wherever, and you want to show a location, you could pull out that book and show them a full page picture of the thing that they're seeing. And with it'll have all 30 pieces of art in it. So it's going to have, you know, 10 of, 10 of the locations will have two pieces of art and, and 10 will have one. Wow. Um, and I think all of the art, I don't have it in front of me, but I think all of the art from the new 10, the additional 10, are all uh, scene, scenes. So they're not, they're not maps. They're not overhead stuff. They are, they're like, here's this chamber. Here's what this chamber looks like. Oh, cool. But I think that that makes them more reusable. Um, so that should be out very soon. The digital stuff should be out very soon in the print on demand as soon as I can get it kind of put together. Nice. Um, and the print on demand, it's, uh, it also just sounds like it makes like a cool coffee table kind of style. Yeah. That's, you know, it'll certainly be on my coffee table. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's just a nice art book. If you just want some kind of cool fantasy art, I think, you know, it also is a great way to showcase Brian, Brian's work. You know, I'm hoping that he'll be real proud of it. Um, because I'm certainly, you know, I didn't even draw it and I'm proud of it. So, <laughs> but I also, you know, I don't want to gush about just how good it looks. You know, the whole point is to make it useful. Of and course. Yeah. Having a separate art book reminds me of like those back pages of Tom, Tom you know, Tomb of Horrors. Mm-hmm. And um, Monty, again, I'm kind of stealing from Monty Cook because in, in that weird Discoveries book, he has a thing called showems, which are like art in the back of the book that you can, that you can pull out. You can't pull them out, but you can kind of. You know, oh sure, yeah. The uh, the fifth ed- or the fourth edition D and D adventures used to have that too, right? Like you could flip to the back of the adventure, and there was right. stuff you could show the yeah, players. Yeah, here's, here's art. Yeah, here's art that you can show. And yeah. my my idea was like, why not make that a separate book? Mm-hmm. Uh, the kind of a because you know I think everything looks better when it's a great big full full page thing, um, and you're not like yeah, ignore that picture up top and just. <laughs> Right, um, you know, right. One of, you know, don't look at the one at the bottom. By the way, that's a demi lich. Right, is the case for Tomb of Horrors. Um, <laughs> it's nicer when you when you have a saddle stitched book. You can fold it over, you know, mm-hmm. without wrecking it, and only show them the art that they should be paying attention to at that time. It's perfect. Yeah. perfect. So I'm really, yeah, I can't wait for that, and, and we're well on our way. Like the art I've gotten from Brian on that stuff, again, just blows me out of the water. So, Mike, before I let you go, there is one other product we have to talk about. Um, And, you know, you make great things. You make amazing, amazing things. uh, And you're just giving it away, man. You're just giving this product away. Uh, And I want to talk about Sly Flourish's Vampires. Ah, yes. Yeah, yeah. So uh, talk to me a little bit about... uh, this product, it's a PDF. People can get it from your website. We'll link this as well as links to yep. the fantastic location products at thetomeshow.com. Yep. Um, uh, show notes for this episode, people can check it out. But let's talk about Sly Flourish's Vampires. Uh, what is it and why do we need it? Um, it is uh, six additional 5th edition vampires that you can add into your D&D 5th edition game. Uh, they start at a low CR of one, and they go up to the ancient one who has a CR of 22. Wow. Uh, I love vampires. They are probably, you know, I think next to like liches. Liches, I think, might be my favorite, but it's a toss up because they're just awesome. I love vampires. And certainly from a pop culture standpoint, like zombies are just boring, right? <laughs> but vampires are just awesome. So I've always really loved vampires. I just love that they look like us. 
and you know, but they're old and they live with a morality that's different than us. And, you know, just, and they have all these kind of crazy powers, you know, true blood. I love the show true blood. Um, I love interview with a vampire. I love Bram Stoker's Dracula. Um, you know, Nosferatu, you know, I love all the old vampire stuff. And I was kind of disappointed with the way the vampire turned out in the monster manual. I know I'm not really supposed to poke other people in the eye, but, um, (laughs) I was kind of disappointed with the way that the straight vampire came out in the in the fifth edition monster and I'm, manual. I'm going to stop you there because I want to add uh, my own voice to that. And it's sure. a criticism I've heard of the fifth edition vampire in general that people are like, oh, this seems a little underpowered uh, for for what it's supposed to be. You know, mm-hmm. um, so I think that's uh, a, a general consensus, probably. Yeah. Uh, about the vampire. And there's yeah, there's there's actually, in my opinion, there's kind of two two problems with the vampire. One is that its damage is too low, mm-hmm. which is actually easily fixable. Like you could just look in the DMG, look at what the damage should be for a creature that CR, add that much necrotic damage, and and you're good to go. Exactly. Um, the other problem though is its charm ability. In in my opinion, is written to just really make the game kind of suck. <laughs> uh, because the vampire can charm someone and then never have them attack anybody and never do any damage to them and then just tell them to go sit in the corner and they will and they don't get any saving throw or anything. So they, you can like take a fighter and just remove the fighter from play you know, with no opportunity to sort of be broken out of it. And um, you know, I, to me, like, that, that, just, you know, that sort of action denial bothers me. Mm. Um, from a game design standpoint, I get it. Like, you know, the charm makes a lot of sense from vampire lore, but I think there's like other things we can do. Um, so Sly Flourish's vampires was, was, you know, served two purposes. One is I wanted vampire fifth edition vampires that were cool. Uh, and two is I wanted more of them because there's really only two, um, in the monster manual, there's the feral or the, um, uh, vampire spawn who's relatively low CR and looks like, you know, kind of one step up from a ghoul, like a more powerful <laughs> ghoul. Sure. Um, and then there's the, the, you know, the vampire lord who's like, you know, Strahd. And it's like, aren't there vampires in between? Like, can we have vampires that are smart and maybe a couple hundred years old that aren't <laughs> legendary? You know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I agree completely. Yeah. So, so, so that's what I wanted to do here was I wanted to make a bunch of vampires um, that were, uh, that, you know, gave a lot of options to uh, DMs, you know, it, it helped that Curse of Strahd was out, but I didn't really sort of design them around Curse of Strahd. I'm, of course, I'm using them in my Curse of Strahd game. Um, my poor group tomorrow is facing an ancient, an ancient one. Uh, we'll see how that goes. And, um, you know, but there's a lot of uh, different options for vampires to throw in your game. Um, the other thing I did with it is I, I, I uh, uh, commissioned Chris Sims, who worked as a designer on the 5th edition Monster Manual, to do the development work on this um, so that he would bring – and Chris and I had worked before in the 4th edition days on some big-ass 4th edition monsters. So um, you know, I think we knew each other's style, and I knew he would sort of bring me back down to the reality of what the design of these monsters should be. Uh, and he really did. Like they're they're much stronger. They're not just some wild, crazy idea of mine. They're now sort of much more refined than they would be if I just made them up. Nice. Yeah, that's a huge get too, Chris Sims. And so this yeah. is available on your website for free. All of these awesome, awesome new vampires. Yep. yep. Yeah. So because you know because Fantastic Locations did so well, uh, and I had time waiting for you know waiting for other aspects of it to finish, and this was something I wanted to do it was more important to me that it was in people's hands than that I was making money from it. Uh, it, I think it's important that 
that creators of, of, of quality material are getting uh, the, the uh, you know, are getting paid for their work, right, are, are getting what they deserve for the work that they do. Um, with this one, it was like, well, I'm not doing any art. I'm not doing a cover. Um, you know, I am, I am commissioning Chris Sims to help. Um, so there, there, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, the cost wasn't zero. I put a lot of time into it. You know, I, 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 I worked for a couple of months on it. Um, but I really, you know, I didn't want to like sell another thing. And then, you know, when I look at the marketplace and, and kind of see all the different stuff that's on the DMs guild and everything else, well, there's a lot of material there. And even though I think like the quality of this is really high, uh, I don't know how it would compete and I just didn't want it to get lost. So it was more important for me to put it out there. I, I feel like it's a good $4 product, right? Like to me, if I, if, if I hadn't done this, I would have paid four bucks to buy it. But I don't, I don't, you know, I, I would rather it's in people's hands. If they feel it's worth $4, there's a link at the bottom of it to, to throw $4 my way based on whether or not they think it's worthwhile. Oh, wow. Well, that's, I mean, I do definitely think it's worth $4. Uh, and I think, I think it's, you paid. <laughs> I did. I, I did pay. I did pay. I have put my money where my mouth is, listeners. Uh, and I think people should definitely go. Uh, I mean, how often do you get to check out a product totally, totally for free? You can even play some of these vampires and then go back and pay Mike Shea for them if you want. So uh, I, I think people should definitely check out Fantastic Lotations. I think they should definitely check out Sly Flourish's Vampires. I guess the next question is, can you talk about what's next on Mike Shea's plate? You know, everybody loves to be all coy about what they're working <laughs> on. And I suppose there's good reasons, but I don't know that I'll bother um, because no one's really going to be that upset if I have an idea and talk about it and then it turns into complete crap. Oh, we'll, we'll have a whole show that slams you. Yeah, like, can you believe what he did? <laughs> he said he was going to do X. Um, there have been, there's so much talk about, and, and we've already talked a whole um, uh, a whole bunch on this uh, on this particular podcast about adventure design and stuff like that. And there's some really good, uh, you know, I remember Wizards of the Coast said, hey, uh, you know, if you want to send, I think this was before the DM Guild was up, but even as the DMs Guild was up, um, they said things like, there is a big market for short adventures. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, my good friend uh, and, and yours, Enrique Bertrand, the newbie DM, uh, recently talked a lot about this on Twitter and said, um, yeah, I'm done with big ass campaigns. Right. You know, I don't have time for it. No one has time for it. We need short adventures. And I kind of like, you know, I heard about the Watsi running these one hour lunchtime adventures. And I was like, man, D&D in an hour. What's that like? You know, how do you <laughs> do that? That's kind of neat. And, and again, kind of getting back to what an adventure looks like. So I, I, I've started and, and I'm in the very early delicate stages of a, um, a thing. I won't go sorry. You know, I won't curse it by yet calling it something like a book or a product. Gotcha. Um, but a thing where I'm doing short adventures that are written to be about two hours long. You can make them bigger if you want. Uh, and they have options for how to make them bigger. Um, they're focused, they're, they're focused and written the way the lazy dungeon master guidelines are written. So, you know, where does it start? Uh, what are the main things that happen? What are the secrets that secrets and clues that the PCs will discover? What are the interesting places that they'll visit? You know, that, that that's sort of the structure of the adventure. Heavy, heavy on outlines and bullets and real quick summaries of things. 
Uh, the locations are written very fantastic locationy with, you know, here are the aspects of what is there. And here's a little quick three sentences of, of read aloud text. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, and the intentions are like four pages long, you know, they're about 2000 words each. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, which is significantly smaller than most, most, most of the four hour published adventures you see on DM Guild are 10,000 words. Sure. So yeah. these are, these are much shorter than that. And they, you know, they might suck, right? They might be too loose. <laughs> my, my turn, I, this, this is not helpful. Um, but one trick that I'm doing is because I have fantastic locations, I'm saying, you know, if you want to extend this, consider using this location from fantastic locations to make it bigger. Huh. You know? Um, so I'm, I'm working on a fun one right now where, um, a young, a relatively young noble Lord, um, kind of tricks the characters into helping him explore the the depths of his own keep that like he's young he's had you know the place is 20 generations old all of his former ancestors have built like secret chambers below but they're all kind of walled off and and his you know the the words were don't ever go down there you know it's bad stuff down there but he's like i want to see what's down there that's cool so he like tricks the adventures into going with him to find out what's down below and and what i said was you know I'll, i'll come up with five five chambers that he'll discover Mm-hmm. Um, but if you want to make it bigger, use the Mad King's castle in fantastic locations. And now you've got 12 chambers that you could discover on top of the five. And they're a lot, they're different, you know, but they fit thematically. Nice. Um, that's, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's the, you know, two, you know, then I, you know, and I, I, so I actually, I sent a, I sent a, a version of one to Enrique because he had been talking about it on Twitter and, and he kind of responded positively to it saying, yeah, that's, you know, and it was crap. What I sent it was crap. Like I hadn't even edited it yet. <laughs> Beginning, the, the front of it and you know, like the introduction of what the adventure is going to be and then what it actually ended up being are not even the same at all. <laughs> and, and yet he's still like, you know, I think format wise, he was like, yeah, this is what I want. You know, like that it, in that case, I think it was two pages without art. Wow. But I have lots of questions. Like, I don't know how to do art. I don't know. You know, I don't know what I'm going to do for that. I think that definitely would need more maps rather than rather than sure. Seeing. Yeah. Um, I don't I don't know what it would be, you know, I, and, and worst case, I'll just start releasing those articles on Sly Flourish. But best case, it might be it might be another another thing, but it'll probably be a while before it becomes a thing. Sure. But I uh, I can't wait because that sounds uh, that sounds like a really, really great product. And like it, I was going to say, it sounds like it goes hand in hand with fantastic locations. But then you said you've already thought of that and uh, know yeah, how it's like, going to work. So the goal, the goal would be that either of these things stand on their own, but if you have the both, both of them together, you can get even more out of both of them. And that's, you know, that's, we'll see. That sounds <laughs> that's right. the idea, right? More modular modules. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So Mike, um, uh, as we're wrapping up here, where can people find you on the internet? Slyflourish.com uh, is my website. That's the primary hub of the Sly Flourish empire. Uh, Twitter.com slash Sly Flourish is my Twitter account. I'm pretty active there. And um, I publish new uh, kind of DM advice articles or new new articles every week and a DM tip every day uh, on, on Twitter. Awesome. And of course, on Facebook, right? There is a... Yeah, I have a, I have a somewhat neglected Facebook page. Because <laughs> I'm not really a big Facebook person, but I have, you know, articles are posted there as well. And, uh, you know, I, I, I did, I think, recently post like a bunch of pictures from my game up there. So there's actually content on the Facebook page that you can't find anywhere else. But yeah, I'm old and I'm old and I can only manage blogs and Twitter. <laughs> I'm not on the Twitch and I, I bum off of you fine folks for podcasts. 
Well, there you, you know. go. Yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, that's how it works. There's way too much social media to manage for one person. I guess. I so. don't know. <laughs> well, Mike, so thank much. you so much for joining me on the roundtable oh, today. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. All right. And now it's time for our DMs Guild pick of the episode. My pick for this week is The Naiad's Revenge, a single session adventure from author Josh Kelly. You may know Josh's work because he's written two Adventurers League adventures, uh, Shackles of Blood and The Broken One. This is another genius adventure from a genius designer. It's a steamy side quest or a campaign starter. You have been invited to the opening day of Grand Thermai Bathhouse. Unfortunately for the wealthy party guests, the natural hot springs they drained to warm the baths were the home of a powerful spirit. The hot springs naiad and her minions will see her waters restored or die trying. This short adventure is for second level characters and can serve as a side quest or the beginning of a larger campaign. It is available for $2.99. It's called The Naiad's Revenge and there's a direct link to this adventure in the show notes for this episode at thetomeshow.com. All right, everybody, you can find me on Twitter at James Intricasso. That's at J-A-M-E-S-I-N-T-R-O-C-A-S-O. Also, check out my blog, which is all about Exploration Age, the D&D 5th edition world I'm building over at worldbuilderblog.com. Me. You can get tons of free resources for your D&D 5e games over there and just finished up a free little PDF that is a uh, addition to Storm King's Thunder. If you have Tome of Beasts, I added a desert giant lord to Storm King's Thunder, so check that out. All right, everybody, thanks for listening. Thanks to Jeff Greiner for letting us join the Tome Show lineup. Our theme music, which you're listening to right now, was composed by Eric Michaels. Don't forget to go to thetomeshow.com and use the affiliate links whenever you shop on Amazon or the DMs Guild to help support the show. And hey, if you like the show, please rate the Tome Show on iTunes and like us on Facebook. Keep on rolling and keep on listening to The Roundtable.